0: Hi everyone, Uh, my name is Uthikarsh, I'm the founder and CEO of Network Capital here with Radhika Gupta, the author of a fantastic book called Limitless, over and above her uh, busy job as the CEO of, uh, of a fund. We'll talk about her career, why she wrote the book, and a wide range of things. So welcome to Network Capital, Radhika.
1: Thank you. Lovely to be here, Utkarsh.
0: Tell me about uh, the title of your book. Why did you title it Limitless?
1: So, you know, the title of the book was probably the thing I struggled with the most. I And it was something that we we couldn't come up, I couldn't crack till the very end. uh, And then the word limitless showed up. But um, I think when I heard it, when I heard it, when I thought about it, it really fit because I truly believe, and this this book is written in the context for young people, Um, I truly believe most of us have incredible potential and incredible opportunities, particularly in the context of India today. So we are limitless potential and limitless opportunities. Um, And this book is how you unleash all the sort of challenges, things that you hold your back to really pursue that, uh, because when you choose to do that, so that I think is how the title came up, and I must tell you, it it was the last thing I finalized as an author. Uh,
0: yeah, so it's your first book. Um, how did you structure it? What was the uh, thought process behind writing a book at a time like this? So,
1: firstly, it was something I always wanted to do, but never thought I would do. Um, you know, I have enjoyed playing with words uh, and telling stories. I've had the time to do talks, uh, but I always thought my writing would be limited to Twitter for a long time, because I think as a full-time CEO, I just thought a book would never happen. And people tell you that a book is a post-retirement thing. I think that's that—that's what everybody told me. Um, and then Hatchet and I started talking in uh, 2020, and you know, I mean, talk about limitless, COVID was really tough, but it also gives you a set of opportunities. And hmm. I said, listen, I'm not traveling three days a week, which is what I would usually do uh, in my profession. Um, and so there was weekend time, otherwise I'm always traveling on weekends. Um, and the hatchet team told me something which I really liked, which is that your voice today is not your voice when you are 60 or 50. Uh, we have different voices as we evolve in different stages of our lives. Uh, so your voice today and your message today is for a different audience and it's a different voice and it can change and evolve, so give it a shot. And that's that's how it started um, in mid-October 2020. I spent a lot of time structuring the book, um, as much structuring it as I did writing it. Um, I really wanted to noodle on the seven themes um, and I wanted to make sure they were relevant. Uh, mm and interesting. Um, and I know some themes will resonate with some people more than others. Some may not, some may touch a chord. I think it's, it's very individual, but they were themes that were close to me. They were issues that I had struggled with, uh, you know, so I felt I could tell a story about them. Um, and the book is not an autobiography in any way. Um, so it was a collection of curating my stories, thinking about stories from childhood till present um, thinking of stories of others that have inspired me because the book has a couple of those thinking of anecdotes incidents so putting that together was quite a bit of work and then putting the words together was its whole set of work as as I say I think a book is a real labor of love.
0: I would love to know more about it because in the book you talk about your classmate you talk about Amitabh Bachchan you basically you talk about uh, Bollywood actors and so forth So this is not something that just happens. One has to really do their research and put it together in a way. Can you give us uh, a glimpse of what your day looked like when you were doing all of this research and structuring?
1: Yeah, so I love outlines. You know, I've been a literature, many people know me by my management and engineering degrees. Uh, And I also actually studied some literature at Penn. I nearly finished an English minor, which is like one of my big regrets. Um, And I enjoy the process of outlining and coming up with pieces and outlining and outlining again. Um, And, you know, you talked about Bollywood. The book references Bollywood. It references examples from things I picked up in Nigeria um, and stories of Nigerian tribes. Uh, It picks up, you know, things from history and historical fiction that I read. So in some sense, it is things that are close to me and things and ideas that speak to me. I mean, things that I grew up with, stories that I grew up with, and in my head, I was putting them together. So I was just writing down all the influences uh, that I have had at various points in my life, quotes that stand out, stories that stand out. Um, you know, the, the whole Amitabh Bachchan uh, thing was because I had actually met the producer of *Kanbanega Karodpati* at that time, and he gave me a very close glimpse into Mr. Bachchan's journey. Um, and of course, he's someone who connects with everybody. But uh, that's where it came from. So, uh, in in that sense, it was also a very good experience for me to just be able to put all these thoughts down um, and then kind of structure them. But the book really speaks to examples that you know have meant something to me.
0: Yeah. And I think that's what makes it relatable, because we can see your story, uh, your struggles, your triumphs um, through different lenses as well. Would you say that uh, writing this book has been about a specific goal that you wanted to meet for yourself? Or would you say that uh, there was a story within you waiting to come out and this book manifested at the right time in the right place?
1: I think my audience wrote the book for me. I started a subconscious journey of storytelling when I did my first talk. Um, and since then, and I, I'm a very reserved and shy person, um, you know, contrary to what some people believe. And since then, um, you know, that talk for me was the beginning of finding confidence and Limitless is another step.
0: This is the first one? Are you talking about the TIS talk?
1: Yeah, this this is the one that was TISS and then finally became the girl with a broken neck, which you know, uh, quite a few people have seen. And that's really when I I have never talked about my story. I don't even believe that I like most people in the world, I don't believe I have an extraordinary story. But I I I also think that all of us have extraordinary stories if we choose to see them that way. Um, so after that, and so that this talk and that whole journey was a period of finding self-confidence. And Limitless is, I think, a continuation and sharing of that. After I did the talk, I started doing small pieces of writing on social media platforms. And a lot of that writing found an audience, and then people would come to me and say, why can't you put this together in a full book? Uh, So that feedback kept coming to me, and I was laughing it off for years. Um, So I think... uh, This was a tribute to all the people who write great letters. And I've mentioned some of those letters in the book, Um, who write these questions, they come to, and I hope this helps answer the questions. So it was a way of giving back. It was a way of expressing myself. It was a way of sharing more stories. And I hope it will lead to more people sharing stories because um, I really believe that especially young people, a lot of people write biographies and great stories in their 60s. But I believe that a lot of us can contribute in a very meaningful way by sharing stories. Um, And stories travel a very far
0: place. Absolutely. And your book is a great example of it. Uh, Radhika, um, did you struggle with failure? Do you struggle with failure? Because uh, from the outside, you you have done pretty well for yourself. But reading the book gives a sense that you're actually somebody who has try to define her relationship with success and failure. Talk to me about that.
1: I I, I don't think there is anyone who doesn't struggle with uh, failure. Um, And I don't think, and I say this at the beginning of the book, I don't think a system that we grow up in teaches you how to handle it. It's it's one of those out of syllabus kind of uh, lessons. I have, I don't I also don't pretend to say that all the issues in the book that I talk about I've conquered I've not I'm not that sorted I don't think anybody is um but I'm learning how to conquer them um so I struggle with it less than I did uh in the past um I have come to and one of the favorite things that I talk about in the book is finding it there's a chapter that says finding your own sky and then learning to fly I've at least now to find a definition of what is success for me, Um, what are the things, what are the metrics that matter to me, so I can rationalize it uh, a little more, and I don't, I know the, metric. I'm very competitive, Uh, and you know, maybe the, maybe the book will, you know, talk about that, I am very competitive, I've not lost that edge of being competitive, Uh, but I know what, what I want to compete with. Mm-hmm. Um and I know who I want to compete with, and that's me, that's me. Um, so in that sense, I've become a little more logical about failure. I still feel bad about it.
0: Yeah. So talk to me about competition. Why are you competitive? And when did you discover that you had a competitive streak in you? Because you you grew up in a in a different environment. As you talked about, your parents were uh, in India, as they say, Sarkari people worked in the government. You were the, I believe the first person to go down the private sector route. Yeah. So uh, yeah. your competitive zeal uh, would be very interesting to deconstruct,
1: and, in, and that has also changed colors. I think my competitive zeal was very classically competitive as <laughs> I grew up. Um, you know, in 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 incident, I think initially competition is a defense mechanism. I talk about uh, you know the tricky days of Nigeria and teenagehood, and you know I mean everything has gone through that, uh, and then you find something to stand out. Uh, I think now the competition is a more mature version of competition. I am competing to be a better version of myself. Um, I believe that I have tremendous opportunities, like most of us. I mean, I really say one life, so many opportunities. How can I just max it out? So now that is my definition of competition. Uh, you know, I want to max out the amount of opportunity is given to me and I truly believe I'm blessed with you know a lot of them so I think my definition of competitiveness has evolved from a classic one uh you know to a more evolved one uh and I talk about competition in the book also
0: you do you do uh personally for me the sections of the book where you talk about uh, deconstructing passion was super mm-hmm. helpful I would love for you to walk us through, um, what is passion? What does follow your passion really mean? And uh, how did you sort of stumble into all of these insights?
1: And the reason I spoke about that is, I think I've heard the word follow your passion uh, a lot. Um, And um, it's it's not something that comes naturally to a lot of us. It, It didn't come naturally to me, I mean, what if you're just a good student and you know, you're just doing what is set out for you and you don't have a natural thing to code or a natural love for finance or a natural love for literature, but you're just a good, nice kid. Um, I think it is important to discover that. The other thing, you know, I believe and I talk about it in the books in the context of passion also, is that we are taught to grow up to say, okay, you're going to become an engineer. You're going to want to become a lawyer. You're going to become XYZ. And that is the only metric. or I mean, that is defined for us. And that is the only option. And God forbid if you don't become that, you know, it becomes very painful. Um, so I truly believe that you should look at the world within open mind. And, you know, rather than running after the best opportunity out there, find the opportunity, take the opportunities that you get and make them awesome. I mean, because that's in your control, right?
0: Yeah. Since 1990, uh, the word "follow your" the phrase "follow your passion" has gone up 900 percent in English language. People use it all the time.
1: Yeah. Wow. Wow. I didn't even know that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, don't
1: know, I don't even know where that phrase came from. Um,
0: follow it's your the passion. most common commencement advice. Like uh, almost every commencement speech is basically follow your passion, follow your heart. And mm-hmm. as you said, mm-hmm. you can just you can just have to uh, you'll have to figure it out. And you you did for yourself. When yeah, so, I'm saying
1: I'm a private, I'm a first private sector kid who didn't know what finance was. I I haven't said this in the book. but I'm not going to what. Um, and you know, I was a second year student, I was a sophomore then, and a freshman came to me and said, when I graduate, I am gonna work for the tech banking arm of Morgan Stanley in LA. And I was like, <laughs> I don't even know what tech banking is. And I didn't even know that much about Morgan Stanley. Um, and while you know, total respect to those people out there, uh, there are a lot of clueless people who find their way into finance and just do fine. Like
0: me, also. You know, you feel you you obviously you've built your category of one. You've done exceptionally well, Radhika. But uh, your story also makes people realize that figuring things out as time progresses is also a way to live life. Uh, You're um, you're a mother, right? And uh, you told me just before we started that another baby, you will become a mother, sorry. So um, you will become a mother. Do you think that the pressure on children to figure things out early and, you know, get into the tech banking LA is just getting more crazy with every passing year?
1: Oh, well, it's wild. Um, it's wild. Um, I, my husband and I, and we also do a fair amount of interviewing for Ben. and I know you're a pen alum. The pressure on kids is wild. I mean, you know, you have 11 and 12 year old kids trying to figure out whether they want to be on social media marketing or do sports management etc etc and you know at some level it's not bad because we live in an information age where there's just a lot more information out there than there was when you know I went to college but the pressure is incredible um, and it is a social media fueled world right so you also believe that everyone else has it sorted it really isn't true. I mean, you talk to more CEOs and they'll tell you they don't have it uh, sorted. But I think the pressure is increasing and people are confused. So before you've had time to figure out what matters to you, there's a lot of pressure. Um, so it's getting worse and worse with the years as information becomes more available.
0: Yeah. One of the questions that I'd love to ask parents and future parents is like, what would you tell your child about careers? And I think somebody should read your book and maybe they'll find some insights there. Radhika, I'd love for you to connect the dots between stocks, bonds, index funds, and careers.
1: Ah, I And I, uh, you know, look, my book also covers uh, personal finance examples, uh, even though it's not a finance book at all. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things I, I talk about in the book is risks. Um, and I think I am in the equity markets profession. Uh, and uh, I, I talk about the fact that, uh, you know, bonds are bonds, they're boring, they're simple, they pay periodic coupons and that's a way to live life. Um, and stocks are what they are, they're, they're crazy, they're wild, they're risky, they they trend up in the long term, at least the broad stock market does. Uh, but it's not a journey that is without confusion. Um, and I think there is a tremendous amount to learn from the stock market about rejection, about taking feedback, uh, about personal branding, by the way. um, You know, there is um a chapter that's a little unconventional that draws from the stock market and talks about your own personal price to earnings ratio um, and uh, so it's just a lot about wrong... to
0: come to that after this yeah, so
1: <laughs> about reputation, so stocks can teach you a lot about reputation because ultimately um, what is a stock price it's a it's it's a reflection of what the market believes
0: you'll do a hundred percent and in your book, you talk about you know you can look at your career as a bond, as a stock whatever, and it's a very apt analogy. Um, tell us about your P by e ratios, personal brand, and how should people uh, think of building it?
1: And, uh, you know, so the personal brand uh, section comes later. And I think one of the adages that were taught uh, early in school is, and through life, is that work hard. And working hard is super important. Uh, but it's when you go to the workplace, you realize, working hard's not enough. There is something called networking. There is something called a personal brand and you can have two people. And then, you know, it's a leader, I see it. You have two, three guys, all putting in equal amount of work and they rise at different paces. I've seen this in so many people's career. Um, and some people just want a better reputation at the workplace and reputation takes them far. I mean, how are those people different from, three stocks and three banks, um, you know, all of who earn the same amount of profits, but the market thinks of them differently. And that's my whole introduction to personal multiples and thinking about personal brand and what really defines, I'm not a personal brand expert, but what really defines personal brand?
0: Yeah, my first book, the title is uh, The Seductive Illusion of Hard Work. So when I was going through this <laughs> chapter of your book, I uh, resonated quite strongly with it. But uh, just on personal brand, even though, you know, you said you're shy and you haven't consciously built a brand, uh, in the Mm -hmm. past few years, a lot more people know of you, know of your story, know about, uh, you know, what moves you and why. Um, Mm -hmm. How much of that has been luck and how much of that has been intentional effort from your side? I
1: think... As I say in the book, it's a mix of things that compound. Um, I never believe it is a single force. Um, I discovered social media um, really in 2017 when I became a CEO. Um, and I became the CEO of a small business, uh, a small mutual fund in the industry then. We are much larger now. Um, and one of my learnings then was that nobody listens to CEOs of small mutual funds in our context. And see, the mainstream media doesn't cover, right? But if you have something interesting to say, social media is a platform, and you can find your voice. Um, and I happen to like how to, you know, to write. Um, so I started using the medium. Then the talk came out, uh, and I said, okay, maybe I can use this. Maybe storytelling does work. And then I started using platforms kind of mostly linkedin and twitter to share day-to-day stories it was also you know you laugh uh, It was also my way of getting over a bad day uh, you know sometimes you have a bad day at work and as you know as a head of an institution you can't scream at a lot of people uh, but once i had a really bad day and i lo- wrote a twitter thread on 10 things I tell myself on a bad day. So some of it was just very organic and some of it was me uh, writing. Um, And I think the effect has compounded over the years. I've learned how to use the platforms. I became a LinkedIn influencer last year. Uh, You know, so then I've got some guidance. So it all kind of comes together. But I really discovered social media and the need to build a brand, so to say, because I was running a company and it's hard to get a voice as a you know, uh, CEO of a young organization. And I talk about some of those challenges. So it started with compulsion. And I think it's become a little more thought out. And I I really enjoy it. Uh, I even enjoy dealing with trolls.
0: Yeah, you do. Awesome. Um, I found your preparation for your talk, especially the way you took feedback, take feedback, really interesting. So who is Mr. Raghu? And uh, how, what kind of feedback uh, did he give you and how did that change your future stage presences?
1: Oh, so Raghu is, Captain Raghu Raman is, I think one of the finest public speakers I've, I've met. Uh, one of the finest storytellers. He's someone I met, you know, and this is chance, right? At a training session, Adelweiss had organized for leaders on storytelling. Um, and as I say in the book, I'm very cynical about these things, you know. It's like, take my weekend and what am I going to, and I I, I usually find training sessions very theoretical Hmm. Um, and I found that what Raghu had to say spoke to me uh, in a way that very few things do Uh, and that's how I met him and I kind of embarked on this journey with him Um, and uh, I think you are very fortunate in life if you have people who are meaningful critics. Um, and I give some examples uh, in the book. Um, and uh, the reason I talked about that feedback and a couple of people have pointed out that section of the book, um, is because people know the success of the talk that is Girl with the Broken Neck. They don't know the backstory behind it uh, and the heartache. Um, and so when they see you, they see a very prepared, you know, when I go on stage these days, people say, oh, it's all natural. Uh, if you were born with it. And I, I don't believe there's anything. I don't think anyone's born with anything. I think we're a product of hard work, but also a lot of criticism and evolution. The other reason I wrote, I think, so openly about criticism and I wrote about some of the critical feedback that I get is, I, I think it's hard to take. I mean, I, I work with leaders uh, all day, uh, and it is, it is hard to take, uh, it's, it's not easy. I mean, you, know, you can be 50, but you'll still struggle with taking feedback the right way.
0: Yeah, the, Ray Dalio's quote comes to mind, right? Pain plus reflection equal to progress. And uh, Captain Rahu sort of helped you reflect on some things you could do better. And uh, yeah. we, we're all seeing the impact of it on your public uh, persona. Radhika, uh, let's look at your leadership style. Uh, when you were 24, you you had a particular idea about your career. And then at 34, perhaps that changed. I would love to know in your own analysis assessment, how have you changed as a leader? How have your aspirations changed? How has your point of view about careers evolved?
1: Oh, so I I, I, I love change. Uh, I talk about perhaps... The most personally written chapter in the book is the one about change, and I I do believe that change in a person is is essential. Like if I see the version of myself five, six years ago, it's a very different version, but there is a core set of values that are intact, no no doubt, but it is a very, very different uh, person. Um, I didn't think I knew what leadership was at 24. Uh, when I ran forefront capital, it was a young company. Before I became CEO, I had managed a total of seven people. Um, I now manage 250 plus people, and they're very diverse. You know, across the salary bracket, across the functions, across the age, across the divisions. Uh, that's that's just a, a fund CEO's role is so uh, diverse. Um, so I think I have changed. Uh, incredibly in the last five years. And I hope that, you know, someone asks me this question five years later, I I will say the same thing. So I think change for one is inevitable. Um, I, perhaps as a leader, I think the one thing that, and I've just done a set of appraisals right now, year-end stuff happening. I I enjoy watching people grow, It, it gives me great, it just gives me incredible joy to see someone who was very raw, you know. Blossom over the years. Uh, take feedback. Um, you know, buy into a vision. Start talking the language that you wanted them to talk to three years ago. But finally, it organically comes to them. Uh, start understanding things like culture. Becoming more responsible. And I want, I my hiring strategy is to hire a lot of outliers, misfits, because mm-hmm. um, I was a misfit when I was hired. Um, so I like to hire people who are unconventional, who break the mold, uh, you know, if it's someone in sales and someone who perhaps has never led a team, but is just hungry and has got fire and ambition. And, you know, to see those bets work out is more rewarding than any business numbers. It's incredibly rewarding.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um... When you were you know, preparing this chapter on change, and when you think about this change, you always look at your future self and your past self. But the future mm-hmm. self is still being made, so you don't really know. Um, so, do you think about your future self at all, or do you only judge change with the past?
1: I think about future goals. I've started thinking about that. Um, I think, you know, while careers are at some point random, It is good to have a map as you grow up of where you want to be. I talk about awareness uh, in the book uh, as well. So I do think about the future. I do think about things I'm weak at today uh, and how I can evolve them. Some of them are not in my control, but I'm trying to become more self-aware as a person. So I'm trying to think about where I want to be in the future five years down. And I may not have a very clear picture, but at least I have some picture of the direction I want to take. And then i think about you know the gaps i need to get there um and what do i need to do internally what do i need to do externally um uh, that's something i think about i i also like to pick up major projects so uh, personal projects outside work in terms of development so i had a phase where i went down this whole speaking phase for two years and um i've got this book writing phase that happened for two years and now after limitless you know i'll pick up something else and figure out what I want to do. So I'm going to go one thing every two to three years that can be transformational, that at the minimum teaches me something.
0: Yeah. Um, when you look at uh, your future analysis, many people say the right things, but reading your book made me realize that there is some process to it. Could you maybe give us an example of how you go about doing a reflection of your future and the past, your goals, et cetera?
1: i write a lot of things down you know it sounds very simple uh, but i write a lot of things down uh, i try to storyboard radhika 1.0 radhika 2.0 radhika 3.0 uh, i like characters uh, so i almost think of myself as different characters and try to write them down uh, and think about them and then think about the uh, evolution of those characters and then I talk about what I like in Radhika 3.0 versus what is there in Radhika 2.0. Um, so that's the way I think about it. I think of myself as constant characters and uh, I write those stories down and how how do I want this character to shape up? I don't know if it makes a lot of sense but uh, does, that, that's, that that that's actually my process.
0: And you mentioned in your answer also focusing on things you can control, like the essence of stoic philosophy, which is, you know, which is being becoming more popular these days. It's essentially distinguishing between things you can control and things you can't and focusing on the former ones that are in your hand.
1: There's there's a beautiful, my husband's Catholic, and there's a beautiful uh, prayer. It's called the serenity prayer. That's very popular that, you know, uh, give me the courage to change the things I can, uh, the wisdom, I mean, the ability to understand the things I can't and the wisdom to know the difference. So I'm also trying to figure that out.
0: Yeah. There is an INSEAD professor called Jennifer Petriglieri. Uh, are you, have you heard her name? Are you aware? No. She wrote this really interesting book called Couples That Work. And when I was learning more about your story and that of your husband, uh, I, was, I was reminded of her book. We hosted her on Network Capital as well. So uh-huh. tell me a bit about couples that work from your point of view.
1: Ah, that's, and by the way, my, my husband shows up talking of characters as a frequent character uh, in my book. Yeah, um, he, he, he didn't know that he was showing up. Uh, so <laughs> Pleasant piece. surprise. Pleasant surprise. Uh, but we've grown up together. Uh, we met when we were 17. Uh, and so we've been together for 22 years. Uh, He's seen me through a phase where I was a total tomboy. Uh, he actually made me buy my first piece of lipstick. Not not many people know that. I, I just didn't care. I was so consumed by what I was doing. Um, so we've seen each other's uh, journeys and uh, we, we got together because we liked working together in college, we took a lot of classes together, and then we did the startup together and we continue to work together. Uh, at Aedlewise, I would say it's not the, it's not all uh, roses, uh, it's not always easy to have a spouse that works together, by the way, um, there is no work life separation you know you come at home you talk about office politics and you talk about finance stuff and you talk about stocks and you'll be talking about some random dividend at 11 at night on a friday i mean that stuff happens so look it's not all glamorous it has its positive sides also because i think there's a sense of understanding um but yeah we've, we've grown up together um, and i think uh, that's that's nice and he's learned to find his own definition of happiness and success and I have learned to find mine and we've learned to find a joint one middle, also
0: that's fantastic and he has played a meaningful role in your work life and personal life as you talk about in the book um who have other mentors been like your husband may or may not be a mentor like he's he's a peer but uh, what makes a good mentor mentee relationship and who have been some of these sounding boards or mentors in your
1: work life. I, I I talk without without taking names. I talk about some of them. Um, you know, in the book, and I talk about advisors and leveraging uh, advisors. Many. I mean, I, I talk about Captain Ragu. I think I've had uh, very good bosses both at uh, in the U.S. and at uh, Edelweiss. And what I try to do, and I don't believe in the definition of having a single ID. Um. Hmm. I believe is that each person, and I keep telling my team this, even the worst boss on earth has something to teach you. I mean, at least he'll teach you how not to be a boss, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there are good qualities in most bosses I have worked with. And what I try to do is observe the quality in the person that really makes them tick for me. Um, like, you know, there's someone I had as a boss who was It's just an incredible negotiator and statesman. Like he'd walk into a negotiation and with his eyes, he could get everything done without raising his voice. And I was like, okay, you know, on presence, I want to be like that guy. I would ask him about it. And there's someone else I've known who's an exceptional people person. Like, you have a people issue and he is the guy to talk to. Uh, And so then I write him down in my head and be like, okay, he's my people guy. When I have a people issue, even though I don't work with him anymore, I'm gonna deal with him. And this is my, you know, storytelling guy. And so that's how I kind of, I build a toolkit that, in that sense so and they they are not mentors only because they work with me right it's constant and uh, you know I talk about this a lot more in the book but that's how I try to pick up qualities from people um, different backgrounds different ages non-corporate profile Um, and I think over the last few years I've learned that meeting people outside your industry is one of the richest things That Mm. you can do. Um, I had great conversations from people in the film industry that can teach me something about the finance profession. And you would think film, finance,
0: what do they have to do with each other? In one way, everything. Everything. (laughs) So many
1: many, high risk taking businesses, highly paid people, so many things, high profile, public, uh, lots of information. So, I mean, yeah. you know, lots to learn, but I think the point is find good elements, find what you can learn from everybody, and then try and extract it. And look, everybody loves to talk about what they're good about, good at. Yeah, them.
0: yeah. yeah. Uh, I was wondering. Uh, many people come to us and ask, uh, "Can you find us uh, a tribe of mentors?" And we do through experiences mm-hmm. and so forth. Yeah. But in your experience, have you find uh, have you found this? Uh, people ask you will you be my mentor or will you do this for me? Will you do that for me? What's your reaction and advice to people looking for mentors and seeking mentors in general?
1: And uh, I write, I have a chapter on finding your tribe in the book, but I get this question. Literally, I get a mail every day saying, will you be my mentor? Um, And it's hard to make that happen. I mean, it's hard for me to just, everyone has, day jobs. And it's, you know, when you, what I say in the book is what I'll tell you now, it's hard to take on that burden of mentorship for a single soul. But if you reach out to me with a specific question, I'm more than happy to help. So I think our definitions of conventional mentorship need to change. Um, And just as you decorate your home gradually, you need to build your tribe. Gradually, rather than relying on a single person or a single email, it's okay to like someone want to emulate someone's career, we all do that. But, you know, to just expect that one person is going to show up and solve everything for you. I think you need to assimilate and diversify and build.
0: That's a beautiful analogy, Radhika. Um, What's your advice to uh, somebody who's feeling very confused, lost and uh, directionless after the pandemic?
1: One is, it is okay to feel confused, lost, frustrated. Uh, You know, one of the things I say in the last chapter of the book is, let's let go of the belief that we always need to have it all together. Um, We don't, Uh, it it happens. We all have days when we think the world is falling apart. I probably have one of those days once a month. Um, And I think once you've sat with your feelings and accepted that, Um, then I think it is time to look forward. So ask yourself why you're feeling confused, why you're feeling lost, and find one or two things that can give you that sense of purpose in life. Um, I always tell people, if you're unhappy at work, for instance, do something about it. Don't be a confused soul. Don't be an angry, bitter soldier for a long time. Think about what is really bothering you in your work, in your personal life, etc., and then take action. I am, uh, and I don't know if the book says, I'm a very action-oriented person. So I like to take action on my situation. After I've reflected, I do believe it's important to take action on your situation mm-hmm. and change the things you can. And if you can't, and if there are some things that you can't change, then to sit and accept them. Um, but I do believe it is important to take action. So. If you think work is all you have, for instance, and that's not meaningful, then move to a more meaningful role. Um, If you think your life is lacking something because it's all work and there's a lack of a personal hobby, go out and find
0: it and pursue it.
1: But really answer what is bothering you and take action.
0: Right. Uh, What is atypical advantage? What does that mean to you?
1: A typical but advantage.
0: Just the advantage of being different.
1: Ah, oh God! It's such a it's such a beautiful thing, and it's such an underrated thing. Uh, I don't think people understand. You know, in India they always say, or even anywhere in the world, give me something new, give me something new. Different is that new. Different is. That extraordinary, that extra and extraordinary makes extraordinary happen. Uh, People are always, you know, when people apply to college, and I've been talking to a lot of parents who are applying to their kids, everyone's looking for something different. What you think makes you an outlier, makes you stand out, and I give many of my own examples in the book.
0: Uh, Maybe talk about one that means a lot to you.
1: Um, I think age, uh, you know, so when I joined the business as a young CEO, um, and I talk about this, age was a liability in financial services, you don't have gray hair, right? Um, And, uh, you know, the book has some interesting anecdotes on what journalists, etc. said on this, Um, and age is an, an age and lack of experience. Age is also an asset, it makes you nimble, it makes you less cynical, you don't have baggage. Everyone's looking for young people. So what you believe is atypical, is outlier, is unique, uh, is whacked, can be different. I mean, look, the, the, the funniest example I can give you is, uh, I spent half my life whining about the shape of my neck and didn't take pictures. Uh, and then I got known as a girl with a broken neck. I mean really. It's, it's a typical advantage for you on a plateau, right? Uh, but it's the approach you take to it. And by the way, I have tons of letters from people all talking about their own atypical issues that bother them all day. Uh, and the challenge is converting them to advantage.
0: Do you want to reflect a bit more on this, Radhika? Many of our listeners are Indians and would know, but many of our listeners are not Indians and may not know what you're talking about so do you want to explain that the girl with the broken neck and how that has really affected your life changed your life
1: yeah so the reference first I think to the word um is because I have and it's probably not obvious in black right now a slight tilt in my neck um it's like this um and uh, I grew up with all kinds of issues around it because I just felt it made me look ugly. Uh, and I, we probably all have stories about what makes us look ugly. Um, I, in 2018, I did this talk, which was called, and you know, I think my brother or someone used to call me the girl with a broken neck. So I, that's how I titled my talk. Uh, but in 18, I'd come out with this talk, which is on YouTube called a girl with a broken neck. Uh, I talk about the impact in the book also, that kind of talked about finding confidence in these struggles, et cetera. Um, And when the talk, uh, you know, did well, especially all over India, a lot of people wrote back to me saying, hey, you know, we know that story. Like someone wrote back to me saying, I have a bald patch on my head. And when I saw your talk, I realized, maybe I don't need to cover my own bald patch. I can just go out and embrace it and live. Um, And so the talk was a talk about letting go of the beast of imperfection Um, and I talk about this more in the book I think I have a chapter called thank god I'm flawed Um, because I also believe in a social media world there's a lot of pressure on us to anywhere appear perfect
0: yeah and again like that talk in a way gave confidence to so many people to really embrace their flaws and accept them. And it's a journey. And you, you walk us through it in the book and in your uh, presentation. So thank you for that. Um, gender and atypical advantage. Any thoughts, ideas, suggestions for our listeners?
1: Ah, uh, You know, uh, perhaps the most hated question I get, uh, and I tell you why in the book, is what are the challenges of being a woman in finance? Um, and all I would say is, if I were to do it again, I would be a woman in finance over a man in finance over and over and over and over again. Um, I would never change that. It's 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 a wonderful thing. Uh, does it come with its issues? Of course it comes with its issues, mm-hmm. right? Um, but everyone has their own set of issues. But here, I'm one of 50 CEOs who's a woman, at least everybody knows me, right? Um, And that is a typical advantage for you through a very simple lens. Um, So I like to kick gender out the door and I don't like to kick it out the door. I actually like to kick it out the door and say, gender is my friend, my different gender is my friend. It is my advantage and I'm going to max the hell out of it.
0: Do you get some uh, pushback on this or not?
1: I get mixed views um, when, look, I'm still a fighter for gender, you know, I mean, there's a oh. panel where, you know, there's no woman there, I'm still fighting the cause for gender. Um, but, yes, um, I get and I get some pushback when a lot of and I'm on a lot of these women's WhatsApp groups. Um, so, you know, they frequently talk about all the issues that have happened. And I, I don't deny any of them, by the way. And I. Talk about in the book some of the issues that I've gone through as well. So I don't deny any of it from, from that perspective. Uh, but I want the lens to be different. Hmm. And I, I don't want young girls to grow up thinking that they have it any worse or that they're at some stupid kind of disadvantage because they happen to the other. Hmm. I mean, I'm, if I have a daughter, I don't want her to grow up thinking um, That being a woman in any profession that she's going to be in is going to be a liability.
0: Awesome. Um, Thank you for sharing Radhika. Um, What does uh, rethinking mean to you and what are some things you've changed your mind on in the last uh, couple of years or last decade?
1: I'll tell you one thing I've changed my mind about and I'm constantly rethinking. Um, Being emotional at work, I used to think that uh, being out there, being emotional, being vulnerable, um, especially in a CEO role, is a liability. Um, And uh, I was brought up with that background, right? I was brought up to believe, very formal background, very diplomatic background, that you maintain a distance from people, you stay disconnected, there's a corner office, there's a glass cabin. and yeah, I, I, I have learned that that doesn't work. I, I think emotions can be an asset.
0: Yeah. Uh, Penn professor Adam Grant, I don't know if you met him or mm-hmm. uh, got to know him or not. Uh, he wrote this uh, interesting book on rethinking. And he said that people who are most sure about their careers at 20 end up with the most uh-huh. regrets at 30. Do you agree with him, disagree with him? I think
1: our careers change. I mean, I give you my own example. At 22, if you had asked me, do I want to manage people? I probably would have said I want to step far away from people. And now I'm telling you stories on this conversation about how I get the greatest joy in seeing people grow. So I and my father-in-law says this. He is an executive coach. We we don't need to plan ahead for Morgan Stanley Tech Banking in LA because you know we probably will have four or five careers forget jobs through our lives and many of these careers we will not even know when we graduated so yeah. you know, um, it is we are flux we are work in
0: progress especially at a time like this in my yeah. next book which is a uh, focused on passion economy I talk about portfolio of careers and how people yeah. will sort of have to build a wide range of skills and experiences and then as time evolves sort of create a micro job or an opportunity, you know, in a way. uh, I
1: I talk about this in in the book that it's, it's not about what you know how to do. It's about being able to adapt to what is out there and, you know, pick up things, build a portfolio of careers and keep reinventing that portfolio as well. Portfolios aren't static either.
0: Yeah. Do you want to tell us about adaptability quotient and what that means to you in your life?
1: Oh, it's i think it's so close to my heart because i perhaps grew up in an environment where adaptability was a necessity and i saw it in my parents um you know so closely because we just lived in so many different random countries but as i see people today it's one of the things i see leaders struggle with a lot you know there, there's a line that people say in hindi that which is like we are like this only i mean that's that's literally what the translation is um, and i keep telling people that clinging on to the past and not changing yourself is a definite recipe for disaster so i'll have team members tell me when i give them feedback you know that you need to change this oh but that's what made me successful well guess what still means you need to change, right? Still means you need to find a new fit. I mean, I think uh, Amin Tufani, who I've had the privilege of hearing uh, from Singularity twice in person, uh, gave this beautiful talk on, you know, IQ's out, EQ's out. It is uh, all about uh, really AQ in life. And AQ is harder to do. Uh, I used to think it is very natural to people, as I said, because of the environment I grew up in. It is hard to do. Because AQ means having the ability to accept change, let go of the past, take feedback on yourself, bring in self-awareness, and constantly keep evolving yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I had a conversation with someone last week and Someone was still talking about the notion of a permanent job. We live in a way, and that was relevant perhaps in an India of 30, 40 years ago. Um, we live in a very different world today. We live in a world of geek economy.
0: Yeah, gig economy, now passion economy. I, I yeah. also heard uh, Satya Radella, like I used to work at Microsoft, talk about AQ and how as a company, yeah. as an organization, as teams, a lot of us had to adapt to make sense of the times we live in. And your book points us to write examples and mental models there. One of my favorite sections, again. So Radhika, before we let you go, uh, you have to tell us about this gorgeous painting and some of your other interests outside of work and uh,
1: writing. Okay. So this painting is not as expensive as it looks. It is a painting I got from a, it always has a charity foundation called It'll Give. And there were these, believe it or not, I've never told this story. There were these leftover paintings one day that we found. uh, And they just said, you know, they're up for sale. They're random artists. Um, And I saw it and I picked it up. And then Sanjeev Bhikchandani, who's incidentally one of India's most prominent entrepreneurs, he saw this painting on a conversation and like this, and he's like, Radhika, you could easily pull that off for an sale." And I was like, hey, it's a matter of perspective. It's a painting I randomly found that nobody wanted at an auction. Um, But I like it. It's it's bright and it's happy and it's colorful and it's crazy. And I have uh, quite a few of uh, these characters. So um, it doesn't often need to be the most uh, expensive thing. Uh, You know, it can be something that, you know, works for you.
0: Yeah, Sanjeev is one of my mentors. So I'll make sure to remind him of this story when I see him next.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he actually told me, I was like, Sanjeev, if you said it's an MF Hussein, I'm recording this and I have the recording and I'm going to sell it for a lot of money.
0: Um, Radhika is there anything that uh, I should have asked you that I haven't or any parting advice that you'd like to give our uh, listeners?
1: Ah, Any parting advice? I think go out and uh, be the best uh, that you can be. Uh, Live uh, genuinely and truly limitless.
0: (laughs) Well thank you so much Radhika for writing this fantastic book. I'm sure it's going to help uh, thousands of people around the world make better career decisions, make smart uh, life choices in a way. Thank you for sharing your story so candidly with wonderful examples. Uh, We look forward to being in touch and having you back with us soon.
1: Thanks Sutan, it was lovely.